Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, it's the middle of May. Spring's out there somewhere. <laughs> I know it's out there because I've been out in it. <laughs> in the rain? In the, in well, the cool weather? <laughs> in the rain, in the cool weather, and in the sunshine, trying to get uh, trying to get the yard back in shape, man. Full-time job. All right. Got plenty to listen to while you're doing that? Yes. Matter of fact, I was going to say my model sphere has been filled with uh, modeling podcasts. Uh, the guys on OTB uh, keeping me keeping me well supplied with stuff to listen to while I mow the yard and weed and weed eat and do all that. So while I'm not exactly at the bench, it still keeps me somewhat involved in what I like to call proto-modeling. How about you? Uh, well, you know. I don't know. What have I been doing in the model sphere? I've been exploring uh, the best way to kind of maybe get the Facebook Live going with the with the equipment I've already got, and uh, been kicking around a few ideas to maybe improve the website. Other than that, uh, try not to spend too much money. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> really, really not much outside the model in the model sphere, other than actual actually building, which has been good. And this, and working on this podcast behind the scenes. I am glad that uh, you survived uh, your recent oopsie. Oh yeah, I had a car crash. Yeah, yeah. And the, the irony of that is, I just got the title for the car in the mail today. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But hey, luckily it wasn't a new car. Nobody was hurt. Nobody was hurt. That's what insurance is for. So, you know. That's the important part. I don't have to go find another another uh, podcast host who knows all the engineering, man. Yeah, I didn't I, didn't eat the windshield or anything. Yeah, I got I got to get some key man insurance on you fast. <laughs> might be expensive. Yeah, well, might be, but it'd be worth it for sure, for sure. <laughs> Mike, uh, while while you're sitting there recording, what are you drinking? What's your modeling fluid? Well, I'm on the gumball head. Yeah, it sounded like a gumball head opening. Yeah, it's pouring yeah. like one too. Good, good. <laughs> That's always a good. Yeah, everybody knows all about this one. So it's from Three Floyds out of Munster, Indiana, and we love it. Yes. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> it is It is the the uh, official uh, brew of the show. So yeah, yeah we, we love it. Those guys do a great job. Except that they hadn't figured out they need to sponsor us yet. That's right. We'll have to get on them about that. What about you, man? What are you drinking? Well, um, I thought I heard ice rattling. Yes, you did. Uh, uh, I'm actually... In a plastic cup. Right. Yes, it was a plastic cup. That's right. Uh, Dang, you're good. It was... uh, I'm having a highball, which for those of you who don't know, is a bourbon and Coke with ice. And the one thing I've emphasized on previous podcasts is if you're going to drink a highball, if you're going to drink bourbon and Coke, do not use top shelf bourbon. Don't even use mid shelf bourbon. 
<laughs> because it's a waste. It truly is. So what are you mixing it with? Evan Williams 101. Okay. Well, you've mentioned bottled, that before. Bottled in bond. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's aged maybe like four or six years. Uh, it's hot because it's 101 proof, basically 50.5% alcohol. And you would not want to drink this stuff straight. I mean, it has a good bourbon taste, but if you're drinking it straight, you're getting the heat, the, the, the heat alcohol because of the high content. It's not been aged well, so it doesn't have a lot of the notes that you get from a finer bourbon. But if you're just having a mixed drink because it's been a long damn day and it was a long darn weekend and you're making a highball, Evan Williams 101 is perfectly fine for that. Well, what a coincidence. Our first listener mail tonight. All right. John Ozyka from Pahrump, Nevada is back again. He says, it's all your fault. And I think he means both of us. <laughs> His modeling fluid is what he sent us is Evan Williams and water over ice. So no, no Coca-Cola, okay. but uh, Evan Williams nonetheless. Yeah. And he asked, and I think you answered, do they still make JTS Brown? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they do or not. I believe so. Could ask your dog. Yeah, oh, yes, I, he's going. He's going nuts right now. Stop it! All right, yeah, we got a lot of in, in, in listener mail, so I rolled that one into the the modeling fluid segment. But uh, sure, we got quite a bit here. Bill McCullough, and he does not give a geography. Um, and to preface this a bit, social media shoutouts are really the kind of the plastic posse's one of their main segments. But uh, I'm sure Scott won't mind this one as it was submitted by a listener. Bill suggests a YouTube channel. And the title of that channel is Lego Biker. And uh, this is a young man named Andrew. When I say young, I'm thinking 13 tops. I don't know, but uh, he's a fairly young man. And uh, all you Mojovians out there, I tell you, go have a look, folks. It's what it's all about. It is a window to your youth. And go look at his Ravel Huey build and his Ravel USS Missouri build. And just uh, revel in the, uh, no pun intended. <laughs> that was good. That just kind of happened. Yeah. Revel in uh, the youthful exuberance of this young man and what he's doing with his models because he's having a ball and he's showing everybody. I wish he had a Patreon, man. I'd send him some money. So, Andrew, if you're out there listening, you might consider that because I think some people will be highly enthused and motivated by your videos. Did you check them out yet? No, I, ha I have not. Uh, unfortunately, as I've told people time and again right now, uh, with the pandemic and the pandemic easing off here in the United States, um, it has created mountains of work for lawyers and will continue to do so. Uh, I am working hours that I never intended to work. Uh, and, uh, it's it's cutting into the model time. It's cutting into the home life. It's cutting into everything. But uh, no, I do want to check that out because there's nothing better than seeing a kid who's into the hobby. You know, a lot of us come back to the hobby, but it's great to see a kid who enters into the hobby and just the like you said, the youth, youthful exuberance that when they really take it up and when they really get uh, inspired by it. And uh, you're right. It's a it's kind of a flashback to your own childhood. Up next from Mr. Raymond Legrant, 
out of Ware, Massachusetts. In the last podcast, one of you stated not to paint anything completely white or completely black. That would be me. But to add just a touch of color to it, could you please elaborate? Take it away, Dave. Well, um, you may be able to find on well, this big subject, but pure white and pure black look cartoonish when applied. They don't look quote-unquote real because of the fact that rarely is anything, even if it's painted white or painted black, um, rarely in real life does it appear pure white or pure black. To blacks, I usually add a little bit of grays or blues, dark blues. To whites, a a little bit of very light gray or light brown. Uh, or sometimes a very light blue. Um, there is a great article. There is a fantastic uh, modeler up in Cleveland uh, named Mark Smith. And I don't know if this article is online, but he once did an article called Painting Black Without Black. And he painted, I'm thinking it was a British World War II night fighter. I don't remember. That's, uh, but he painted it all using... Dark reds, dark purples, dark blues. He did not use any black whatsoever. And it was, it's an amazing build, an amazing finish. He simulated a black finish that looks like a black finish. And he didn't use a bit of black in doing so. Well, we can touch on the white during uh, the bench time halftime report because you got a little something to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I got a little pain. <laughs> All right. Well, next up, Franklin Smallwood. Hey, guys, done running the whiskey wagon for, for the week. And he's the guy who sent us the picture of the back end of his delivery truck a few weeks gotcha. ago. Uh, this is a fun rabbit hole, these podcasts. Uh, let's see. He's picked up a Ryfields model T3485 for the Plastic Posse group build. Good choice. Says that's my fault for the Russian subject interest. interest. <laughs> Boy, is he going to like tonight? Uh, the the photo etch set, also by Ryfields, is uh, Ian's fault from on the bench. He just joined the IPMS, and that's your fault. Hey, yes, I'll take responsibility. And he ordered those Goodman models super standing sanding blocks, so the, he's going to call out the Canadians too. So there you go. <laughs> Those are a good choice, man. I'm telling you, they come in handier than you ever would have thought when you look at them. Lou Negro from uh, Crossville, Tennessee. That's down the road a bit. Yeah. Not too far. No. Uh, just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast, especially the last one with John Miller. Well, we had a record uh, setting uh, event with that particular episode, so I don't yes. think you're alone, Lou. Dr. Miller is very popular. He'll be back for more. He's going to yes, be. Yes, a- he will. A quarterly regular, we hope. That's the plan anyway. Oh, speaking of which, if any of you all out there want some particular, you have some particular question about airbrushing, or you want to hear him talk on a particular subject, email us and let us know. Oh, yeah, it's a good idea. Then we want to think up all the stuff ourselves. (laughs) He goes on to say he was a 50-50 guy, and he's anxious to try the airbrush mixes uh, suggested by... Dr. Strange brush. So, yep. Thank you, Lou. Good luck. I think 50 50 is a good place to start with most paints, but uh, as it you is. can hear from uh, Dr. Miller, that uh, it's not going to work for all applications. Well, it may work, but not to the 
to the maximum efficiency. Let's just yep. say it that way. Yep. Uh, Jason Champion from Champion Scale Modeling YouTube channel has written in to thank us for mentioning his podcast on a past episode. Yeah, one of our listeners mentioned him because he was doing the sequential armor builds. Right. And uh, he says he's had to take some time off due to other commitments, but wants everyone to know that he hopes to get that kicked off again real soon because there's a lot of stuff he still wants to cover. So stay tuned, folks. Champion scale modeling. Good. Oh, we got a good one here. Michael Luzzi from Peoria, Illinois, in the Polish Coast Watchers IPMS chapter is back, back again, Dave. Uh, he sends more information about their new member who joined as a result of listening to Plastic Model Mojo. And that ha- would happen to be uh, Mr. Derek Shaw from up there in the Peoria area. Way to go, Derek. Who came down to the Roscoe Turner show. Yeah. And uh, even took a prize as one of his entries, which is a great thing for a first-timer, man. I'm sure Absolutely. He's, got, he's really got to be excited about that. Yep. Uh, and I got to meet Derek at the table, but uh, you were busy talking to another modeler at the time and, uh, quote, spreading the mojo, as Mr. Luzzi tells it. <laughs> Probably wasn't Mojo he was spreading, Mike. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm a lawyer. Do you think Mojo is what I was spreading? Uh, Derek's modeling flu of choice is cold brew coffee. Oh. Man, that'd kill you. Yes, that would because of my uh, essential tremor. That kind, that kind of uh, uh, caffeine shot, I, I wouldn't be able to stick two parts together. Probably stick them to your face or something. Probably. <laughs> hey, well, there's a reason. There's a reason my club nickname is Twitchy. I know. We all know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we wish to thank Derek plenty more. Happy modeling, and uh, thanks for being the poster child for Dave's bid for re-election to the e-board. There, there you go. <laughs> How's that going, by the way? Oh, uh, I'm running unopposed, so you know, God. <laughs> Man, Derek's good. I could, I could, yeah, really. Either that, or I've got to pray for a really good write-in campaign. Hope you know, kneecap, hope we didn't kneecap anybody for you. I don't think we did. <laughs> Let's put it this way: getting people to run uh, can be a really tough thing because it is—it's work. It's thankless work. That, that's why I like it. Because it's thankless. No, I, I like the organization <laughs> because people have okay are 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 willing to commit time to it. I mean, they realize the value of it. Well, thank so. you, Dave. I'll thank you. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. Uh, William Chill is an expat from Cleveland, Ohio, and he now lives in Gothenburg, Sweden. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know where that is. He works for the Volvo headquarters. William, I'm I, I'm a Volvo guy, man. You got my ear. <laughs> Send me a discount coupon. There you go. <laughs> or maybe he can send you a Volvo one yes. piece at a time. Send me a car. I tell you, if, it, if I'd been my if I'd been my old Volvo, it'd been the other car in the junkyard, not mine. I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are built solid. That's for sure. Well, he was discussing episode thirty four with a fellow club member there in Sweden about. Uh, I think he was referring to you know how much weathering is enough and how much is too much versus your time commitment and all that sort of thing we were talking about and uh, he's got some interesting takeaways from from uh the modeling community on that side of the world uh he says most seem to be happy with uh one or two finishes a year kind of the hyper finish kind of models trying to meddle at shows yeah it's it's kind of the 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 methodology there and yeah i used to be one of those guys maybe (laughs) one every two years (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah 
Uh, he says our comments were comforting because like many, he looks at what's shown online in the magazine and stuff and just wants to throw up his hands and say to hell with it, you know? Yeah. You gotta, you gotta pick and choose. You know, I listen, I love night shift, but there is no way I am going to invest 80 hours in a model chipping it. I mean, that's just, the, the, the life is too short and you, we all have to decide what level we're comfortable with. And also you don't have to have just one level. You can have multiple projects finished at multiple levels of weathering and finish and all of that stuff. So if you've got one model, you just want to knock out, put on a shelf, you're, you know, that could just because you've always wanted a model of this and those markings or whatever, that's great. And then if you've got something that you are in love with and you just want to take it to the nth degree, that's fine too. And I think a good mix of that is a good idea for modelers because it's, it's, it keep, it keeps you sharp. Whereas if you do the same thing every time, it can become a little dull. Yes, it can. Um, and he also forwarded some more observations from the kind of the uh, entire transatlantic modeling experience. He's 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 witnessed over his, since he's gotten to Sweden, I guess. Uh, he's got kind of 10 bullet points here. I'm, I'm just going to read these because they're kind of interesting. Okay. Uh, aviation seems to be the favorite military subject in Sweden. Sweden has always had a robust aerospace sector as well as the history of producing some great aircraft like Vigans and Grippens. Yep. Uh, seems to be the American equivalent at shows to uh, ME-109s and Panthers. Hmm. And he makes a little joke here, old joke. What does IPMS stand for? International Panzer Measurement Society. All right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vallejo and Ammo by MIG seem to be the paint brands of choice. And uh, Tamiya's everywhere, though. Edward seems to be the aircraft kit maker of choice. The Profa Packs versus the Weekend Editions are subcategories of discussion in, in his club. Harder and Steenbeck and Awada seem to be the most common airbrushes. Both great brands. Harder yeah, and, and Steenbeck, man. I'm telling you, I'm consi- I'm consistently amazed by it. Uh, you see a lot of Russian and Ukrainian brands such as uh, AIM and Zvezda. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to get, probably. Sure, sure. As far as armor, Soviet World War II subjects seem to be favorite subjects, although you still see a lot of German, but more British than American. Makes sense, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The sci-fi category seems to grow every year at the shows. Yes, that's absolutely true. That's true and, here, too, I think. And we welcome, I mean, you know, some sometimes old modelers don't, don't want to welcome that. And I think that's crazy. I love to see if sci-fi and, and is the gateway to new modelers, more power to them because eventually we all branch out. Well, but even the ones this, that's their shtick, man, there's some amazing, amazing models. Oh yes. There. Yeah. I mean, heck some of the, some of the star Wars stuff is just, oh, yeah. in Luf- fact, Luftram's Millennium thank Falcon. you. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to mention. Luftram takes a, uh, a millennium Falcon that is the size of the palm of your hand and is doing a freaking amazing paint job on it. Just absolutely killing it. And 
it just goes to show that those skills cross over. I mean, you look at his Emmy 109 and then you look at his his Millennium Falcon and you can see where the same skill sets being used across genres. This one's interesting. Dioramas, like everywhere else, focus on uh, show-offy hyperrealism. Impressive work, but lacks the dynamic compositions and storytelling aspects like those from the school of Shepard Payne. I do think one thing that is missed by most or many dioramists is the fact that they're telling a story rather than just creating a scene. And and if you tell the story, if the best dioramas, when you look at them, almost seem like they're moving. Yeah, it's an interesting analogy or point. A uh, boatload of Spitfires. I don't think I could ever do a Spitfire and be taken seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Swedes, a- the Swedes had Spitfire 19. In fact, Jim Bates just finished a, a Swedish Spitfire 19. Uh, 172nd seems to be a growing in popularity, especially aircraft. Yay. Because you're, you're an influencer, Dave. That's right. That's right. Me and Kim Kardashian, we have our Instagram channels. That's right. Uh, cars are very popular. The largest category at the shows. That kind of surprises me. That that surprises me too. Uh, although that's true regionally here in the United States. Uh, uh, if you go to Roscoe Turner, always has a very large car turnout. Uh, uh, if you go down south, you get a, a fair amount of car turnout and a lot of NASCAR popularity. Um, and then keep in mind, that's just at IPMS shows. Car guys in the United States tend to have their own separate car-only model shows as well. Oh, yeah. I was about to say that. They do. Yeah. That's true. Uh, and finally, I'm going to read some of this one. It's a little long, so folks have to bear with me. Um, it's from uh, Bob Hallinger from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. My favorite email in a long time. Yes. Um he gives a few kudos on the show and talks about his modeling interests, but the, the real meat of his uh, email, which was really touching, by the way. My best friend from high school named Dave was a physicist who ended up working for uh, NASA Langley in Virginia. We've kept in touch since high school and started doing weekly FaceTime happy hours each week since we live far apart. We would enjoy a ver- variety of modeling fluids, bourbon, scotch, wine, craft beer, shoot the breeze about military history, modeling, sci-fi, and the state of the world. I got Dave interested in modeling again, and he bought kits and supplies like an airbrush and compressor, and we talked about what he was going to build first. He was taken uh, with P-38 Lightning, as Mike is with a T-34. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to start a 148 P-38 Pacific Theater aircraft to show him his, show him the way, and we discussed uh, this over our FaceTime happy hours. Unfortunately, Dave passed away suddenly on September 7th, 2020 from a heart attack, possibly related to COVID. So he never got started again with modeling. I ended up with his kits and his gear and have been building the things he planned to do as my personal tribute to my friend. I've carried the sadness of this loss of my friend for months and sorely missed our weekly FaceTime happy hour discussions. I had no one else whom I could share, scale, share, share modeling, history, and adult beverages with. Although I have a wonderful wife and two adult kids I'm very proud of, and they support my modeling, their interest is really only superficial. With Dave gone, I was on my own in this arena until I found Plastic Model Mojo while searching on a whim for modeling podcasts. Uh, PMM just suits me very well, and I immediately 
felt like a member of your family. Your podcast helps fill a void left by Dave's passing and the end of our weekly FaceTime chats. And I'm so grateful for what you guys do. It really means a lot to me. So, Bob, just to share some empathy with you, I have a first cousin also named Dave who passed away with COVID a few months back. Um, That was kind of sudden. And then uh, I dedicated a podcast a few episodes back to uh, my friend Danny here locally to Lexington who passed away. Don't know if it was COVID related other than the fact he was probably discharged from the hospital too soon because of COVID fears. Uh, but, uh, I understand what you're going through and it really means a lot to me, um, that our podcast has, uh, helped you through this. So, uh, kudos to you and keeping your friend's memory alive. I, I got to tell you, Mike, it's a little dusty in the model room right now. Um, it, uh, you know, you shared that email with me and frankly, that made, absolutely everything we've done up to now well worth it and uh if if we can be that for our for our listeners that's all the gratification i need to keep doing this as long as people want to listen and i'm sure it's not just us i mean all the listeners out there uh have their favorites there's plenty of podcasts out there most of us listen to all of us i guess but uh it seems most of the shows if not all the shows are kind of touching people in sort of that kind of vein now that one's kind of heavy uh but it's nice to know that this is reaching people and and touching them in in that way i i mean we had no idea it was going to come to stuff like that when we started this absolutely not no best email i've received so we've received so far just Awesome. Well, thank you again, Bob. Appreciate it very much and glad to have you as a listener. Absolutely. Well, that's the end of our listener mail. Well, guys, now that you're done listening to listener mail, you know what's next. Uh, If you would take the time after you've listened to this episode to take a minute to rate us on whatever podcasting app you're listening to us on, we'd appreciate it. Uh, We'd appreciate it more if you give us five stars. it helps drive up our our visibility and get more listeners, and that's what we're here for, is to reach out to more and more people, because obviously from the emails we got, we're having a good effect, and we want to continue that. Also, the best thing you can do to help us is tell a friend. Uh, everybody listening hopefully knows at least one other modeler. If they're not listening to Plastic Model Mojo, if you'd recommend it and help them find the podcast and start listening, we'd appreciate it. And if we can't fulfill all your listening needs, there's plenty others out there to listen to who might uh, help you along the way. We got the Plastic Posse podcast with Scott, Doug, TJ, and John. They're, They're right here with us in the United States. On the bench with Dave Eden and Julian out of Australia. And, uh, oh, I'm, uh, I'm about out of Vegemite, guys, so (laughs) just saying. We also have Malcolm and James from the UK with Just Making Conversation, the Scale Modeling Podcast out of Canada with Stuart and Company, and the Model Geeks with Darren, Scott, and a pair of Andrews. Check them all out. There's plenty of time in your day, and if you need more bench time to get through them, then by God, have more bench time. Absolutely. Absolutely. If that motivates people to be at the bench more, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, we've also got some uh, blog and YouTube friends. A sprue Pie with Frets from Stephen Lee. Inch High Guide, Mr. Jeff Groves. 
and the model airplane maker from Chris Wallace and the scale Canadian TV from our friend Jim Bates. Uh, that's a YouTube channel. All the others are blogs except for uh model airplane maker. He's kind of both. He's got a blog and a YouTube channel. They're all worth yep. checking out and worth your time for some great commentary and uh, just a, just some good stuff. Yep. And I'm waiting for Mr. Wallace to produce another YouTube video. I can't wait. And uh, um, Jim Bates is just about to, his latest episode shows him just about to finish another model. So uh, you and I need to get cracking. So that is when he breaks away and starts something new. <laughs> yeah, well, no, actually, I think we've got to listen. We've got his riddling in him. We've got him focused. Hopefully, we're actually going to see a finish here. All right. You're on, you're on the ticket now, Jim. You got to get it done. That's right. Uh, <laughs> folks, if you are not a member of your national IPMS the chapter, that's either IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, or whatever country you're in, Australia, Sweden, uh, whatever, please consider joining your national IPMS organization. Uh, they do a lot for modeling. They do a lot of it behind the scenes where people don't see it. Uh, there are benefits to joining your your national chapter. Look into it. Uh, and when you do that, let me know. I love getting the emails letting me know somebody has joined or rejoined. So we appreciate that. Well, Dave, let's take a break here and have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. It's countdown to Vegas time, Dave. Yes, I am looking forward to it more and more, and I'm talking to more and more modelers who are looking forward to it more and more, so... The, the the enthusiasm is is reaching a crescendo. Well, this episode, I did get in touch with Bob Lamasaro, and he forwarded me on the press release from May 15th. So this is brand two spanking new, two days ago. Uh, there's a lot on here. I'm reading a lot tonight, but uh, just the way it kind of worked out. At the time of this recording, we are 93 days away from the IPMS National Convention in sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, Dave. Yes. Yep. Under 100. That's under 100, awesome. A week under 100. I know. Well, let's get into all this stuff Bob sent me here. There's a lot to cover. All right. Uh, several of Las Vegas' most popular attractions are scheduled to open on June 1st, and we encourage all of our attendees to check out these things for updates and ticket availability. So sounds like there's going to be a lot to do besides the show. Oh, there is. There's a ton. There's a couple of car museums. There's an armor museum. There's a lot to do in Vegas. Room nights booked at the Rio have exceeded 3,200 room nights, which is, uh, which stands at 1600 over their original estimated room budget. Wow. They doubled it. Uh, based on pre-registration numbers, we are projecting a record-breaking 3,500-plus models to be on display in the contest. Oh. The, rec the record currently held by Atlanta in 2005 is 3,236. Yep. If they can do that, that will be earth-shattering. Because in, in previous IPMS nationals, ones held in the West have always been slightly smaller due to the distances involved. Yes. Uh, if 
if they can set the record, man, it will be a, a huge feather in their cap. And it could stand a long time because there might be a fallout fall off after this show. That's the, true. The backlog will be spent, right? Yeah. Unless we get another pandemic. Well, let's hope not. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> vendor tables continue to sell out. Even with some cancellations from overseas vendors, uh, vendor tables stand at 285. Well, we'll call it 284 because we, we won't be selling anything from ours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be selling, we'll be selling bull. <laughs> <laughs> Trophy sponsorship sales stand at 98% sold out, which equates to 193 sold out of 100, yeah, 193 sold out of 198. That's great. Plus 21 special best ofs and theme awards. So that's, they're getting close to being done with that. Yes. There's, there seems to be some interest among our Facebook followers as to what national convention t-shirt is the most popular. As of today, 212 t-shirts have been pre-sold with the Alan, the alien holding a three shirt lead over the Thunderbirds. Well, I'll be getting one of each. So, okay. So you're not going to affect the uh, results. No, I will not <laughs> affect the results because my my collection is is I have an unbroken collection of national shirts, so All I've right. got to add both. Uh, speaking of uh, armor museums, Battlefield Las Vegas is the newest attraction to have signed on with the convention. Battlefield Las Vegas is a free armor military museum that also has on-site rifle and gun range where the guests mm-hmm. can rent anything from a handgun to a fully automatic minigun. Yeah. Uh, Battlefield Las Vegas will be taking reservations and offering free complimentary transportation to and from the Rio. There you go. That is that is an experience. Uh, you can go bust some caps. Yes, if you've ever seen the movie um, The Big Short, there is a scene where they are out in, in La, uh, Las Vegas at a convention, and they go to one of those gun ranges where you can rent machine guns you can actually fire full automatic weapons and it's pretty darn impressive. Pre-registration continues to come in and we encourage everyone to continue to use the pre-registration system. It will not only save you money, but tremendous amounts of time. Yes. And that's important. They're expecting double their original projected attendance. Jeez. (laughs) We are still in need of volunteers. And the following message is from our chairman of events, Bob Lamasaro. Quote, it is time for all able-bodied modelers to step up and do their patriotic duty. Volunteers are needed to fill the ranks and to defend your national convention from our mortal enemy, convention chaos. Basic training is fast and simple. Casualties are expected to be low, and you'll even get a nice, clean, brand new uniform, also known as a Nats convention t-shirt. The time to stand back and wait for the other guy to man your place at the parapet or the model registration desk, the security, raffle, sales, etc. has passed. We need you. Those that stand with us upon the National Convention Day go by from this day to the end of the week without our being remembered. We few, we crazy few, we band of brothers. For whatever commits his time with me that day shall be our brothers. However humble in his modeling skill, this day shall grant him nobility. That's a nice Henry V adaption, in case anybody doesn't recognize it. But uh, yeah, listen, guys, if you're going out to the convention and you've got 
they need a lot of bodies to do very simple stuff, such as stand at doors and make sure everybody's got a tag who's entering the, the vendor room or the model room or, you know, stand behind the raffle table and help sell tickets, stuff like that. If you can, if you're going to be out there, uh, you can, you know, especially if you're going to be out there for the whole convention, think about contacting them and sparing a couple of hours. Uh, the convention's a long week and, you know, just giving them a couple of hours to help them when they've put this all on for us is, is it's a mikvah. It's a, it's, it's a good deed and you won't go unrewarded. Karma will come back. That's a pretty healthy update from Bob. So I'm glad I got in touch with him. That's great. Yes, I am. I'm glad to hear every bit of that. Uh, <laughs> I I cannot wait. Mike, uh, have you been modeling lately? I have been modeling, Dave. Have you? I, you have, and you didn't think you had until I pointed out to you that you've Take, been modeling. I must have been a stupor or something. You, you haven't given yourself credit for what you've been doing because you don't think it's modeling in the same way that what you've been doing has been modeling, but I love it. And I hope you'll share it with the, with the listeners. Well, let's do that. Per last episode, I've finished the chipping on the Zist 2 anti-tank gun. And I've put that aside, kind of taking it off the grill to stand for 20, 30 minutes, like a good rack of ribs. Yep. And I've been working on the, the wooden parts for the diorama base or the vignette base. Basically it's a, it's a three-sided revetment with retaining walls and a, and a pallet to set the gun on. It's all scratched out of styrene. There's no, not using any wood. Uh, and what I've done is I've taken that number 80 grit super sanding block from uh, my Goodman Models super sanding block set. And I'm using that to texture pre-cut. Well, styrene strips has been cut to the widths I want. And right. putting a wood grain texture on that. And then once I, once I do that, it gets a little fuzzy. So I kind of go back and I hit that with the, the old testers liquid cement. Cause it's, it's not too, too hot. Right. And it'll dissolve all those little fuzzy hairs and stuff and just kind of leave a nice wood grain when you're done. Uh, what do I do next? I, they're primed. And then I paint those with the, uh, to me, a buff. I like that color to base wood out of. Mm-hmm. I think, it's a good color for a lot of things because it's it's yeah. not it's not very saturated. It's not a very it's good to desaturate other colors with. Yeah, I think Night Shift uses that a lot. And to good effect, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> uh and then, then kind of what I do for variation, I mix up a bunch of tans and beiges with tints of browns and grays, darker and lighter shades on my wet palette and various Vallejo paints. And uh I go back and I brush paint over the the Tamiya buff base with a real thin glaze of paint, some of these other colors. And then when that's dry, I give it a, a brown wash, like uh, from, I use Tamiya accent, Pantalone accent uh, yeah. solution on these. And I tell you, it turns out pretty good. Did you watch any particular, like, I know AK has a set of videos on, do, on uh, replicating wood, and I'm sure there are some others out there. Did you watch any particular YouTube videos to? I can't say I've watched any particular video, but I think I've probably kind of through osmosis over the last year of watching various videos have picked up kind of a few techniques mm -hmm. or the knowledge to try 
to to apply to to some techniques that I've I've, I've put into this and uh, just seems to be working out. I'm really liking it. Well, hopefully you'll put up some of the photos you've been sending me on our. F- I thought Facebook I did. Page. I think yeah, I did. Have actually. you? I just haven't checked yeah. the Facebook page. In the I, last I think day. I have. Um, okay. And I finally hit that palette with dull coat because it kind of got a little glossy on you from the Tamiya accent, panel sure. accent, but it's uh yeah, it looks pretty good. I'm pleased with that. That's really all I've been doing. What are you going to hit the Zis with the mud and dust? Are you waiting until the base is done to do that or? Well, here's kind of my line of thought. I, I kind of, you know, put it in the, uh, in the display case out of sight for a while and uh, I'm going to work on these, these wall sections for the revetment for the gun emplacement. For for a little while, I don't know if I'll get them done or not, but I'll get them close to done. Uh, just kind of gets kind of a mental mental reset, and then I'll mm-hmm. get the gun back out, and I'll it'll, it'll be like having fresh eyes on it. Gotcha. Because I wouldn't have I won't have looked at it much for the last two or three weeks. Gotcha. And uh, we'll go from there. So that that's the yeah the mud and dust is what's coming up next. But uh, you know I'm slow. I admit it. <laughs> well, I haven't been exactly fast with with all my uh, other commitments lately. I looking for a little bit of a break. I got the missiles out of the uh, TU-128 kit and uh, talked previously about adding reinforcing plates and using those uh, resin decal rivet heads all worked out really well. And then unfortunately Russian air to air missiles are white and so I went to paint them white with, I added some AK white with some AK uh, Russian grayish yellow and uh, got a color I really liked, which was basically white, just with a slight tint to it. But painting white just is a pain in the butt. I primed the missiles in black because I wanted to apply the white coat, not in a, a completely opaque coat, to try and get some of the trying to get some depth by by not completely covering the black, particularly in the shadowy areas. Um, but white just you know it's it's kind of like bare metal in that it's hard to apply. It shows every flaw. Uh, I got some fuzz in some of the paint in a couple of places. My coat was not as smooth as I wanted it. It was just something that I thought was going to be really, really kind of a simple break from the Mosquito and the M30 turned out to be a real struggle. I think I've got a handle on it. They're almost done. Then I'll be able to just put those aside till the end of the TU-128 build. But it wasn't the it wasn't the mental break that I thought it was going to be. Well, didn't you put a wash over these? I put a wash over uh, one and a half of the missiles so far. And that wash really worked out. I used uh, two boils and wash, putting a wash over a panel line wash or a pin wash over white or near white in this case, it's kind of tricky, but I came up with a light blue gray color, very desaturated, very thinned that really popped like I liked it. So I was happy about that. Uh, learn again, that's part of my plan for getting better. I was trying something new and, and I like it. It's just been a struggle to get the, the, the actual white paint was not nearly as easy and uniform as I wanted it to be. So the missiles were a little more of a struggle, but on the plus side, 
I conquered a little bit of fear. The M30, by the way, I think the M30 is experiencing its one-year anniversary for today or this week or sometime in here is when I finally I actually really? started. Yeah. It's close to, if you go back and listen, I think somewhere in the May episodes last year is probably where I started it or at least acquired it. And because this is all new and foreign to me, I've just... I've I've let it get in my head. It's it's worked out. It's looking good. I like where but every step that I'm doing, you know, is something new and because I like the way it's looking, you start to to hesitate and fear that it's not going to you know, you're going to mess it up. So it keeps getting put to the side, but I finally went ahead and finished the last of the pin washing. I like the way it looks. Uh, I'm about a month or two behind you and where you did with the ZIS, because right now I'm going to do some dot filtering on the gun shield and the gun barrel. I don't think I'm going to do much in the way of dot filtering on the uh, split trails because of the heavy riveting and all. And then it's on to chipping. And I have never done this before. I've watched Night Shift do it. I've watched your success with it. I'm going to just bite the bullet and move forward because once I get the chipping done, then mud and dust and this bad boy's done. So I can clearly see this thing being done before Vegas, 93 days. I ought to be able to get it done. (laughs) Not guaranteeing I'm going to take it to Vegas or anything. Just saying I should be able to get it done in 93 days. You can buy something guilt-free because you finished one. Exactly. 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 Okay. Not only that, but I'll, I'll, if I finish this, I'll stop hearing from you and Jim Bates about how the five-part uh, SpaceX Starship was not a real model. But that's what my benches looked like. Yeah, Battlestar Phylactica. Battlestar Phylactica. I like that. That was a good quip. <laughs> I, I will give you some credit. Although, frankly, if Elon Musk is listening to this, he'll probably send a hit team out put a hit out on you. I might. Well, folks, we're going to skip what broke your wallet this this episode because, well, quite frankly, Dave and I haven't spent any money in a while. Well, I've spent a little. Well, we'll save it. Shh, yeah. Save it. Because we got a we got a pretty good special segment tonight. An excellent special segment tonight. Tonight, our special segment is our conversation with the authors of the soon-to-be-available book, T-34 Shock, The Soviet Legend in Pictures. Authors uh, Francis Pullum and William Kurz join us for a conversation about their book project, which should be a really big deal for the T-34 enthusiasts. Yes. So, Dave, let's just dive right into that, because it's a long one. You got it. Well, listeners, our special segment tonight comes to us from the United Kingdom, actually. On Facebook, I've started piecing together a little information from a couple of friends I have there over the last few years, and uh, they were kicking off a new T-34 book, and I thought that would be a great interest to a wide swath of our listeners. Tonight, I've got William Kurz and uh, Francis Pullum from the United Kingdom. Guys, how are you doing tonight? Very well, thank you. Excellent. All right. How's the weather over there? terrible <laughs> uh, this is manchester so by our standards if it's not raining it's actually quite decent whereas i'm from i'm brighton which um you know has a reputation of being sunny but it's been uh, raining cats and dogs out there all day 
Well, Francis, we'll start with you. You say you're from Brighton. You care to expound on a little bit about your uh, your background and uh, your hobby interests? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Francis Pullum, and I'm really pleased that you managed to pronounce my last name right, because not many people can. Um, I'm 26 years old from Brighton. Um, from a modeling perspective, I've been a model maker my entire life. Um, I think I popped up my mum and my dad caved me an Airfix model. I'm fairly sure that's how the transaction went. Um, <laughs> I popped out my mum, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else to, to word that. But um, I've always been a model maker. When I was a kid, it started off uh, predominantly uh, your Airfix and your Revell 72nd scale aircraft. But um, about the age of 12, um, everything changed for me when I went down to the uh, Bovington Tank Museum uh, in Dorset where I got exposed to a whole new world of what armor is, and that's what really grabbed me. And um, I've been an armor nut ever since. Um, I build 135th scale tanks, mostly Soviet, um, but if I'm feeling unwell, I'll touch German if you make me. But I've always been around um, modeling and history. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, you have, a, you have a past published work in, in this armor genre, don't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so back in 2017, my very first book, uh, or our very first book, sorry. Um, More yours than mine, to be fair. Uh, Fallen Giants, the combat debut of the T-35A tank. Uh, yeah, it was my first book. Uh, it chronicled the plight of the infamous T-35 multi-turreted heavy tank in its um, disastrous debut on the combat field Uh during Operation Barbarossa in June 1941. Um, I wrote the book predominantly predominantly because I built model kits. Um, the Hobby Boss 135th scale T-35 had just come out, uh, I think, in 2014. Um, I was working in a model shop at the time, and I fell in love with the tank. I'd already seen it before in the old ICM kit, but this kit was like brand spanking new. But as I was building it, I realized that comparing it to like photographs of the real tank, that um, it didn't quite match both accuracy-wise and the paint schemes that, that were there. And uh, I found online the original Soviet documents of the losses of the 67th and 68th tank regiments, uh, which were brilliant. Um, they cave dates, locations, chassis numbers of most of the T-35s lost in Western Ukraine. And at the same time, I started collecting German photographs of these tanks. And to be honest with you, it wasn't hard to put two and two together, uh, along with Google Earth, to be like, oh, well, if this tank was lost in this place and you match it with Google Earth, it must be this tank. And I worked really closely with some um, Soviet historians who were also doing the same thing. And yeah, um, uh, Fallen Giants came out. Um, very proud of it, but um, I think this book blows it out of the water. <laughs> the next one. Question: Question about T thirty five because I've always now I'm an aircraft guy, but I've always had an interest. My understanding is there was a lot of variation among the T thirty fives produced. Yeah, um, they predominantly fall into uh, just under twenty different batches of T thirty fives. And um, each batch varied slightly in min minor details, mostly. So um, it could be as simple as the type of tow 
uh, ring the, uh, that it had to stowage to more macro changes. Um, in 1937, they experiment with a new hull, which um, it, it has less trap bullet traps around the pedestal for the main uh, turret, and the side skirts uh, are redesigned to be able to be removed uh, without physically bolting them in place and they have these distinctive doors on the skirts and the last the last portion of that side skirt is removed to alleviate mud building up over the drive wheel and then eventually we get into the conical turreted t-35s from 1938 um but that's a really interesting point on t-35s is uh, in in that book you can identify different tanks by their chassis numbers by um, comparing their technical features, which is a really useful thing when you've got a location that might have six or seven T-35s lost at the same place. You can say, oh, well, this must be this chassis number because it shares the same turret hatch. And this T-35 is the same, is this chassis number because it's got a conical turret, et cetera, et cetera. Gotcha. And in many ways, the T-35 book, which um, I'll talk about who I am momentarily because that's the project that I got brought in on uh, and met Frankie because of that it's very much the proving grounds for the methodology used in our upcoming t34 book t34 shock um and when you start to look at the t34 you'll see just how important that methodology is because there are so many 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 more production variants to the t34 than the t35 and so i'm will kurz and francis brought me on through facebook we met and he brought me onto the book to help provide a bit of direction and uh, proofreading and that sort of thing the fallen giants and we immediately realized that we we just hit it off we were really good friends pretty quickly because we had um a lot of similar experiences you know both in the air cadets yeah <laughs> really similar i'm 20 nearly 24 years old now he's only a little bit older so you know we sort of share the same uh world of cultural references if you catch my drift you know red dwarf yep. and that sort of thing we're all you know friends <laughs> we're all boys um, here Sure. Um, I suppose the big difference between us is that I've um, been to university, so I have an undergraduate and master's degree in history. Uh, not so much in military history, although I did do one or two modules of military history, um, ancient history specifically, in fact. So my specialism is cultural history, uh, especially oral histories of political violence in the 20th century. So my undergraduate thesis was on the early IRA in Ireland, my postgraduate thesis, uh, master's thesis specifically. That was on Ernst von Zalman, uh, infamous Weimar far-right terrorist. So I come at this um, T-34 project from a very different uh, background to Frankie. Really not doing many uh, modeling uh, kits myself. I've touched a few of the Zvezda. But, um, you know. I was going to say, Will, uh, we made our connection through the military pages on Facebook and not so much the... Uh the modeling or the T-34 pages? Oh, well, precisely, because uh, what we haven't mentioned yet is that Francis and I have both slowly got into reenacting and the subsequently collecting original uh, pieces. So Frankie will collect gas-related uh, objects, such as gas mask bags and gas masks, whereas I collect trench art primarily. And so we met through Facebook, uh, you and I, because we were talking about trench art. And I've, um, this is something we can talk about later on, actually, after we've... Um, gone into the T-34 book, but we have wide-ranging interests in Soviet cultural and Soviet military history between us. I mean, we're more than just... Uh, I mean, two years ago, we were just tank guys. Now we're uh, fully-fledged <laughs> Soviet history guys. Absolutely. Well, I mean, actually, to be fair, we were both, even back then, still a bit more, but we were certainly known in, in 
various communities as just the tank guys. I think I think we've definitely found our feet. Yeah, because we're, we're you know we reenact now. Uh, we do infantry for June 1941, and we do tank crew for sort of summer 1944, summer 1945. The Red Army, I should say. And have you? published anything other than uh the first book with francis on the t-35 and nothing thus far i mean i was encouraged to publish my master's thesis but um because i had some archival restraints uh, based on you know the whole covid situation i chose not to because it there were some weaknesses of that thesis whilst it was a very good thesis considering the situation i just decided i didn't want to publish it uh, maybe in the future but you know what was your master's thesis? So I analysed the post-war novel, 1951 novel by Ernst von Salomon, as Der Fragebogen, or specifically the English uh, abridged version. And I deconstructed this. It is a very strange novel, and uh, as much as I'd like to recommend people read it, I would also recommend that you do not read it. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very enticing book written by this infamous uh, Weimar far-right terrorist. He was involved in the assassination of Walter Rathenau. Um, and then he has this career afterwards as vaguely involved in some very dubious far-right organizations, um, farmers' revolts, that kind of thing. And he, he becomes a film writer, and then he's interned in a, uh, allied an allied camp, and he likes to say it's a concentration camp. And his whole book is ostensibly a, an autobiographical novel, but it's, it's really a, a treatise on Prussian militarism. He's a Prussian elitist of sorts. And wow. that was his book. So I just deconstructed this and said, okay, look at this chapter, for example, how he talks about the Night of Broken Glass, so called uh, Night of Broken Glass, Crystal right. And I say, okay, well, he's talking nonsense. You know, here's why. Um, he's, he's writing what he writes. Yeah, very yeah. interesting thing, but nothing to do with the T 34. Well, on the subject of uh, what we've previously written on tanks, um, both me and Will have um, forgot to mention we both write for Tanks Encyclopedia. Um, and we both specialize on Soviet tank articles, although Will has written uh, some fantastic articles on Chinese T-34s, which obviously got incorporated in the book. Um, yeah, as well as Spanish vehicles as well. That's another interest. I and mean, civil wars are fascinating things because that's when you know something's gone wrong in a country. Yeah. Yeah, the Spanish Civil War and the Chinese Civil War are both endlessly fascinating. Good models. Well, very good models. <laughs> uh, there are, and that's one of the big problems with the Chinese Civil War, is as much as the or just general early 20th century China, there are some absolutely fantastic uh, schemes you can do from the Kuomintang uh, National Revolutionary Army's 200th Division, but um, unfortunately they're quite understudied. And Chinese yeah. armour in general is very understudied, uh, let alone the Cold War stuff that's of interest to the US military. The that's you know there are some people who write about that, but the weird stuff before sort of 1955, nobody really writes about, which is a shame uh, because it's it's a really interesting story to be honest with you. If you're interested in Soviet armor, you should be interested in Chinese armor by you know by extension. Let's move on to your your current project, which is titled T34 Shock, and uh, you guys can decide who answers, or you can both answer. I don't I don't really care. I'd like to hear both perspectives actually. Um, yeah. But but right out of the gate, why did you select another T thirty four book? What was the the impetus for thinking there was a void here, or or a why? I'm not arguing that there wasn't. I'm pleased to get all the information I can, but I'm just curious about uh, your perspective. Why you thought this was a subject worth worth continuing on? I, I think um, I'll, I'll start this one. I feel that's all right, Will. Um, yeah, of course. 
as silly as it sounds, I never wanted to write this book. <laughs> I, I was asked by my publisher after the release of Fallen Giants to do a T-34 book. And originally I ummed and ahmed simply because it's such a large and complex subject, which I thought it very hard to, to do justice to. However, as time went on and uh, I started putting this book together, I realized that we had something quite special on our hands, something that's not really been done before. The T-34 is such a, a ginormous subject, and there's so much that you can talk about the T-34, whether it's uh, the battles that it that it fought in or um, the paint schemes that it had. And those sorts of books exist. Um, but what I felt, what personally interests me from a modeling perspective was the factory differences. How can you tell that one T-34 comes from one factory and one from another factory? Um, because from a modeling perspective, um, I'm very familiar, for example, with the um, Dragon 135th scale T-34s, and I've always liked them as kits, but at the same time, uh, just like the T-35 book, I'd look at photographs of the tank and go, well, that doesn't look right, and why are they giving it these road wheels when all the pictures show these road wheels, uh, etc.? So just like 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 any other book that I've, I've written or any article I've written, I wanted to address something that I personally found really interesting. And for me personally, the thing I find most interesting about the T-34 is, is how to tell them apart. How can you spot a OMSK 174 T-34 versus a UTZM T-34? And we, we, were, we were blessed with fantastic uh, help from places like the T-34 Interest Group on Facebook, but primarily we used original, mostly German, but also some Soviet photographs of the T-34 post-combat. And um, it was surprisingly easy, I, I found, to sort of piece together the um, production history of the T-34. It's such an untapped little not even little, it's massive, an untapped massive part of the T-34 story, which has never really been told adequately, if you ask me. Like, I'm, I've always had T-34 books around. Um, Zaloga's Osprey book was always very popular. Um, the Baratininsky book on T-34-76 was, was really influential early on. And then, of course, mythical weapon for for the real, you know, the real tech heads who really like the T thirty four. Everyone knows mythical weapon, whether it's the original Polish edition in two thousand three, or I think it's two thousand three, or the English edition. I think that was two thousand seven or eight. Yeah, two thousand seven. So, yeah. But um, I th uh, those books, while they do a pretty, they do an okay job. There were so many unanswered questions that that I just wanted to answer, if any, if if, if for anyone myself. And, um, you know, not to blow my trumpet too hard, I think we did a really, really good job at, you know, you give us a T-34 picture and we will be able to tell exactly where it was made and what time frame it was made. And that's something I'm very proud of. And I think that readers of the book, especially, especially not only, I think anyone who picks up the book will be able to be like, wow, this is fascinating. But from a modeling perspective, people are going to pick it up and go, 
wow, I can't wait to build all these nice tanks that are in this book. <laughs> <laughs> We're not responsible for any bankruptcy that anyone has yeah. to declare because of the uh, model kits that they go out and buy, just so they know. Any any beatings from wives, that's not on us, guys. No. Any shelves that collapse either. Cause this is any shelves that collapse, not just because of the models, but because the book weighs about one and a half kilos because it's 560 yeah. pages, which I think puts it at the longest T-34 book ever written, certainly in English. Anything else, Will, on what Francis has said about uh, why another? Well, I suppose my interest in this was the fact that we'd worked on the T-35 book together, and that was a very enjoyable process. We became really good friends over that. And so in, in many ways, this was just me working with a friend to you know, help him out on what I recognized in the outset, although perhaps not to the same extent as Frankie, is just how gargantuan this project could be if done correctly. And we definitely did it correctly in our view because it's a huge, huge book at 560 pages. And, but what we, what I wanted to do, at least in the outset, was look at all of the strange foreign variants. So I'm sure we've all seen Syrian and Egyptian and Cuban self-propelled guns. Um, that idea that we had got ditched quite quickly, partly because we realized that we really won't have enough space for this mammoth of a book already, but also because the source problems are just, uh, they're too big for us to get into them. We really couldn't find uh, good, solid information out there. Um, although Chinese T-34s suffer from that exact same problem, there's a lot more we can do because we have original period photographs. And so another major source of photographs are 1950s and 60s and in some cases 70s photographs from the People's Liberation Army in China. So we can use those as well as uh, Bulgarian and Czechoslovak and Lithuanian pictures. Awful so, lot of Bulgarian pictures, yeah. Awful <laughs> lot of Bulgarian pictures, uh, surprisingly. In fact, yeah, you didn't expect to have that many. But also Egyptian. We do have some Egyptian pictures in there. Uh, well, we've got a whole SD1. one Egyptian picture. <laughs> we do have others, though. We, and this is the problem. You know, there are so many pictures in the book. You guys should see what didn't make the cut. Mm. And a lot of the stuff that didn't make the cut, it wasn't just T-34s. It was stuff that we also wanted to throw in as, as interest stuff. So, I mean, I really wanted to go... You know, health lever on the China section, and I think you'll see that um, in the sort of preamble to the T thirty four changes in China. Uh, you'll see that I want to talk about you know IS twos, ISU one five twos, and they've got all these weird Japanese vehicles. And we all have pictures of these, Francis and I, but we just couldn't get them in. And so my interest was very much the post war use of the T thirty four, in addition to couple of battle sections. I mean, I'm not a military historian, not by training at least. I'm a, like I say, I'm a cultural historian, but the... So of the four battles, my favourite one is the... Surprisingly, it's one I wrote. Um, it's just the post-war battle. Of course, post-war, it's not World War Two. It's General William F. Dean's battle at Taijon in the start of the Korean War. And how I'm sure we've all seen pictures from maybe like War History Online of Korean... North Korean People's Army T-34 85s, which have uh, knocked out under the supervision of Major General W.F. Dean. Well, I've got his, um, I've got this in my hands right now because it's a great book. I've got his, I suppose it's an autobiography, although it was written with um, somebody else helping him uh, sort of flesh it out. Uh, we use that autobiography as well as an original set of um, U.S. reports on that battle to sort of retell from quite an interesting perspective, certainly when you compare it to the other three battles of people fighting against the T-34, uh, specifically the T-34-85. And so I was very interested in that, and that was um, obviously chimes with my scholarly interests of looking at oral histories, um, because um, autobiographies do constitute oral histories, um, surprisingly enough. One of the things that that's fascinated me, although I'm an aircraft guy, is that 
the uh, Bay of Pigs, the T-34-85s versus the uh, M-41 Walker Bulldogs. Yeah, actually, surprisingly enough, we do have a picture of one of the tanks that served in the Bay of Pigs, the very famous eight-part composite that uh, Fidel stood on. Yeah. Um, a very interesting uh, story there. Unfortunately, we don't go into that. I mean, the um, because we use the battles to contextualize production changes, uh, we, you know, we, we, as much as we would like to tell stories of um, T-34s in Angola and, and Cuba, uh, they're not particularly relevant insofar as the production changes go. Although I think, I think there's a scope for a really good T-34 book to be written on the post-World War II combat use. Um, I think in Vietnam as well. Mm. That would be interesting. That's hey, maybe food for thought for us, but perhaps yeah. not. Um, but this is what this is what we're saying, though. You know, with the T thirty four, there are so many aspects you can cover, and so in the last few years, there have been some absolutely fantastic specialist books on T thirty fours. I'm thinking of Andre Furtsov's um, self published book, uh, Surviving T thirty four Tanks in Israel, for example. That's an absolutely fan- fantastic look at. And I know Frankie's got this book in quite a place on one of his bookshelves. Yeah. Fantastic look at the wrecks of. Syrian and Egyptian T-34s, uh, chiefly in the Golan Heights. Uh, absolutely great book. And there's, uh, I think it was, uh, oh, what was the name of the guy who did uh, that Boiter Panzer um, T-34 book? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was, oh, I can't remember actually. But uh, Skolsky, for example, uh, a friend of ours actually, has written, I think he's got several volumes on T-34 camouflage schemes. The most recent one was uh, T-34-85, just in 1946 to present day. Uh, really good books. So there are some great specialist books, for example, like that. And there's definitely room for post-war T-34s. I think a lot more work needs to be done on Chinese T-34s because all I give is the first published um, intervention into that story. But as I'll elaborate on later, because I know Frankie doesn't want me to go off on a massive tangent on Chinese T-34s as much as I'd like to. (laughs) Again, yes, because we've done this a few times. Um, We can talk about that later, but there's a lot to be said about them of source problems but uh you know we'll see how things progress over the next few years and as a complete aside um we actually have a photograph in the book in north korea of a t3485 with uh, uh an m24 completely not relevant to like the, the historical oh stuff. yes it's in the background korea. driving past yeah yeah in korea that, that well, just a nice on the subject of t3485s in korea we probably I mean, I think most people who are vaguely interested in maybe not just even the korean war just general military history will be Maybe aware of T thirty four eighty five number two one five of the Chinese People's Volunteer Army in Korea, and this is the that crazy story that this one T thirty four eighty five, and it's retold in various ways, allegedly destroyed, you know, numerous M forty six patterns, bunkers, and and this kind of stuff. And um, we do actually retell this in the back of the book, and I got relegated to a footnote because, as far as I'm concerned, it's a CCP, it's a Chinese Communist Party uh, myth on par with something like Be Like Comrade Life. Uh, absolutely ludicrous. And we spoke to Stephen Zadloger about this, a very well-known tank historian, obviously, you know, big with the Journal of Slavic Military History and um, Osprey, of course. Uh, we spoke to him about this and he said, well, you know, one of the problems is that US reports were sort of lost in the late Korean War or maybe they just weren't written. So, you know, it could be. Uh, but given what we know about uh, Chinese Communist Party myth-making at the time, I really don't believe this story. And and neither should you, as a matter of fact. (laughs) One topic I wanted to speak with you guys about, because it's fascinated me over the last few years, and Dave and I have mentioned it 
at least on a couple of occasions on the podcast already. And it's the use of German snapshots as the primary source material. Mm. Uh, this, uh, at least from my perspective, kind of came of age with uh, Jochen Follert's work at Tankograd Publishing out of Germany. Mm. Uh, a lot of his works, in fact, almost all of them, his primary kind of single subject volumes are high content German snapshot, wartime snapshot photographs. In fact, I've got his Tankograd's latest T-34 book on my shelf as well, The Birth of a Legend, the mm-hmm. T-34 model 1940. And it's just... Yeah, it's a very good book. Um, actually, can I jump in here, Frankie? Because I really love talking about source and uh, methodology. Well, we discussed it earlier. So yeah, be my guest to, to reiterate it. Uh, well, we'll come back because I think there's a lot more that needs to be said about it. So one thing to bear in mind is um, that German soldiers had access to private cameras far more than any other perhaps, at least in our view, any other army. And and certainly these pictures are now accessible to people who want to buy them. And that is chiefly the problem. A lot of these aren't in archives. You know, you have to buy them. And they'll be split up from the original album. Um, and largely, this means that they're decontextualized. And so a little bit of archaeology I've studied, it really comes in handy because it's the same methodology as buying a piece of uh, Egyptian pottery on a market. It's completely out of context. Uh, and you really have to do a lot of... Uh, work to put it back into that context whether that's by cross-referencing it with other sources so if you have a destroyed t-34 but you see there's a little russian orthodox church in the background maybe just maybe you can cross-reference that with other sources and start to say aha now we've got a location can we start to work out date and uh, one of the really cool things and you see this more in the t-35 book than the t-34 one just by nature of uh, the photographs you'll see things like the Germans almost start to remove little pieces of the tanks. And, you know, you'll see over time the tanks almost, it's almost like they suffer through entropy. But of course, it's probably people, uh, it's probably like locals taking pieces to make, you know, uh, roofs for their chicken coops and things like that. But you can start to sort of see what happens to the tank over time. And, and this is actually true in other contexts. So German photographs of the Spanish Civil War, it's the same deal. We can actually see that quite a lot. Um, I can think of one armoured car that seems to um, get chop-shopped over time as if it's parked in Detroit. Um, <laughs> shout out to anyone who's in Detroit at the minute. I've, yeah. just insulted you. I've just insulted you guys gravely. Let's see if I can hit every state. No, um, it's, abs- it's absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> with, with German period photographs is knowing the unit of the photo- of the. F- of the photographer an essential piece does it help is it vital it it depends on the project with the t35 book uh in particular it was very useful in being able to track the potential paths of where the t35s drove before they they uh, were knocked out or abandoned uh so t35 a chassis number 254 uh 34 for example was lost in a location which by all accounts, no one should have guessed it was there. But using the um, using the the note that was written on the back of the photograph in conjunction with movements movements of the unit from where the photograph was taken, we was able to pinpoint it and actually on Google Earth, you know, find where it was exactly and be like, oh wow, well here's a T thirty five, and we can quite happily cross reference it with this photograph. Why is it here? It shouldn't be here, and that's that. That's a completely different story. Like I was gonna say, just with regard to the T thirty four book, it was it was definitely less important to us because 
where the book doesn't really focus on units and movements and battles and tactics like i said it's it's definitely more focused on um the the what's in the photograph and um you know something uh, something you said was um in recent years like german photographs are becoming more and more used as a primary source and that's absolutely no different to what we've done like the majority of the book the primary sources are essentially german photographs of these tanks knocked out which is a blessing and a curse um sometimes you can find some really stunning tanks which there'll be absolutely no record of them in the archives and that goes for both coloration and markings and the physical tank like the nuts and bolts and road wheels and tracks Uh, on the other hand the nature of the beast was that after 1942 the germans are losing the war um and photographs become less and less and less common and while we do have a very large number of wartime t-3485 photographs in the book it's less than i would like um compared especially to the earlier vehicles um however that wasn't too much of a problem because the majority of the chopping and changing of t-34s was in this critical year and a half between german invasion and sort of operation uranus and the, the spring of 43 um, so that was really useful for us because, yeah, the, the majority of these early changes, some experiments, things being put on, things being taken off, are quite clearly captured in these rather special photographs. On the other hand, when it gets to the later war stuff, I, we had to rely far more heavily on Soviet photographs and photographs, as we said, of Bulgarian tank crews. Um, Mm-hmm. Just general post-war Czechoslovak sort of photos of those, the ones that they have in use, yeah. These German photographs were most interesting as well. So like the enemy using the tank, <laughs> you know. So that, that sort of really doesn't matter to us, though, the fact that they're post-war or not, because we can right. still look at the production variants. Although, you know, like we say, if you're really interested in late wartime stuff, um, you're probably better off looking at, you know, uh, archive materials, to be honest with you. But um, that's probably one of the big things for our book is that these photographs uh, i think something like 90 percent, if not more of these are absolutely unique wartime photographs or just unique general photographs that have been taken but just on the just on two points on the um because you asked earlier about if it's important to know the units of, um so if you knew the unit that took the photograph i suppose what you'd be thinking is uh, really asking us is could you work out what the battle was and then con- could you cross-reference that with Soviet sources and work out who the Soviet forces were and then could you maybe work out what happened to this T-34? Yeah. Hypothetically, yes, but with one major caveat and this is absolutely key to understanding the nature of these photographs. The overwhelming majority of them were not taken in combat. If In fact, very, very, very few, a handful of pictures like this uh, mm. will be taken in combat. The majority are taken after combat. A few of them will be taken not long after combat, minutes, hours. The overwhelming majority, though, are taken by what we would call tourists. And so this is why we call any photo like this tourist photos, because it'll be Germans, rear-line units, whether that's, you know, um, vehicle, uh, truck drivers would be a great example of people who take these photographs. They're driving on the road, they see a tank, they think, oh, hey, let's take a snap of that. And so in a lot of the pictures, you'll see Germans clambering on board, posing with the tanks, because that's what they're doing. They're just tourists in, in almost the true sense, except for the fact that they're on board with a you know very uh, dubious project, should we say. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but that aside, that is the problem with the photographs. So if you did know the unit of people who took it and you did have the full album, well, most of the album would probably just be, you know, guys around the barracks and a few other pictures around the local village. It, it wouldn't tell you a great deal about the battle. So that is unfortunate. But yes, hypothetically speaking, you could investigate the battles that they were involved in. But as we say, we're more on the technical features. So whereas something like Mythical Weapon is a little bit more about the battles, we're really just focused on the technical features and, and the four battles we do provide, they are context. It raises an interesting question. We, we've, Mike and I have talked about on previous podcasts, and obviously you all have, a lot of photographs from German soldiers, private photographs, because German soldiers in World War II had a lot of private cameras. Do you have many candid, any or many candid photos from Soviet soldiers? Was there uh, anybody? Not the thing is, there's this sort of myth that anyone who had a camera in the Soviet Union, you know, was taking it for the exclusive end of propaganda, and it was all heavily staged. Um, this is a great point about methodology that I'd like to tell everyone so that there's no doubt. Every photograph is in some way staged, okay? Staged is such a pejorative term when, it, when we talk about the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany because we think, yeah, propaganda. Not so. Every photograph is staged no matter who it's taken by in some way, and it tends to be the photographer's directed someone to stand a certain way or, you know, they've captured it in a certain light. Even the lighting can affect the tone of the image. This is... This shouldn't be news. Um, so I suppose, okay, so the, the simple answer to the question is no, the Soviet Union did not have private cameras. If you had a private camera, that is because it was clandestine and you, depending on your disposition, looted or liberated that camera. But, <laughs> you know, I'll leave that up to you. You know, you can have your own views. I have my views on what that was, but uh, that's aside. So no. But um, that doesn't mean that Red Army press photographers, and by the way, they weren't just military photographers. They were attached to uh, specific specific, uh, journal organizations, journalist organizations, and not dissimilar, I'd imagine. Or maybe it is slightly different to the uh, photographers in the Vietnam War, but you can think of that as maybe a general, you know, way of looking at it. So, you know, they were subject to a lot of um, restrictions. As for German photographers of you know, who had private cameras, they couldn't take photos of German war dead, for example. And although you do find them, of course, you know, uh, regulations are never reality. And you should remember that when you when we come on to talk about archives again and why we haven't consulted the archives extensively for talking about T-34 chains. But we'll come back to that. So the answer is no, but we do have lots of post-war Soviet photos, which are often candid as cameras become more common. And it's not just a case of political restrictions means that no one can have a camera, although that is, of course, a major reason why um, cameras aren't that extensive in the wartime Soviet Union. It's also a case of the fact that it's not a it's not a consumer-driven economy and consequently, or certainly not to the same extent as Western economies, you know, Germany, the US. Um, so we do have lots of cameras after the war and we do have lots of it's very similar albums of soldiers after the war, but not really during the war. You don't tend to get that. Well, to, for my two cents on, on the subject, um, like Will said, uh, during the war, not very common. But post-war, there is somewhat of a, uh army culture of creating your own photograph albums of your service. Um, and with regards to our book, a few of the, the T-34 photographs we use are 
um, from these albums. So the majority of the Soviet photographs we have are essentially T-34s at rest uh, with with their crews posing with them with the purpose of them going in these memorabilia books for their, for their uh, military service. Uh, there are a couple of photographs that sneak in which are regimental photographs because that seems common as well. But the, yeah, we don't actually have that many Soviet photographs which were taken by normal soldiers we do have archival photos where we need it so during all the prototyping of the um the a34 the a32 the bt20 a20 t43 you know that sort of thing prototype t3485 t34s all of those things we got out we got archive photographs for but they're less than like two percent i think of the entire photographs of the book and you know and that's one of the big things about this book and a lot of criticism of recently published t34 books i'm thinking um uh, not to slag this book off because you know it is what it is and obviously we're not the people to review it because we have a vested interest in saying this but something like wolfgang fleischer's book um, last year i think it was a translation of his german 2018 book um, I, I won't mention its name because i don't want to Badmouth it too much, but um, the overuse of archive pictures in certain books, and I'm not saying this about Fleischer's book, but there are a lot of cash cow T34 books where you know a two bit publisher's got some vague military historian to put together a Soviet World War II book, and it's just old uh, stuff that you've seen in the 70s, 80s, you know, old um, press photos, archive yeah. photos that you've seen before. We don't, we don't, you know, we don't do that. This is one of the great things about our book is that these are almost exclusively unique you know there's so many unique photos in this book that you're never going to get anywhere else there are a handful you know that you might have seen before such as we say the archive pictures but aside from that 95 percent you will have not seen these before and they're absolutely great pictures yeah just you know not a bragging thing at all but you know my my no no we are definitely bragging like let's not mislead the listeners my private photograph collection is is three thousand plus photographs um not just obviously of the T thirty four, but I've got just under a thousand photographs of the T thirty four, of which about six hundred are in the book. Yeah, pre- predominantly German, but also a mix of everything else. So, yeah, the overwhelming majority of the photographs you'll see in this book have never been seen before, and uh, as a modeler, that excites me. <laughs> and just as whilst, just whilst we're bragging, uh, also is we probably have the largest collection of T thirty fours in China outside of China. Mm of which quite a number make it into the book. And they're also very helpful for telling the post-war production and modification story of the T-34 as well. Well, I for one am excited. I've got my copy pre-ordered and I can't wait for it to arrive on my doorstep so I can check it out. Because I, I really I really like the photograph that you're using. I haven't seen them, but I, I know I know this source for reference because I use it myself. Uh, mm. I'm always on German eBay looking for something interesting. Uh, I'll buy the odd one here and there if it's something that really interests me. So, depending how avidly you look, you might have seen half the pictures. Then, <laughs> uh, I, I, well, I actually, that's another great thing that we should say is that one of the major problems with this source set, in addition to all of the methodological ones of using, you know, uh, out of context photos, is that actually these are largely inaccessible to the average sort of person. Partly because you know a lot of them will be watermarked quite heavily, but also because of the price of some of these pictures. You know, um, oh, fortunately, Soviet photographs don't usually go for that high um i won't give rough figures but um things like german photographs if you've got a tiger 
or tiger, as the Westerners like to call it, uh, you know, this can go for hundreds of euros. Um, some of them are absolutely absurd. And, you know, uh, that's one of the other great things about this book is that um, the book costs you 40 quid. Uh, we wouldn't care to say how much it cost us. It's five figures that I put into this book. Yeah, yeah, it's five figures. That raises a question. You've got all these photographs that have never been seen before, most of which have never been seen before. Did you acquire most of them from eBay? Did you acquire them directly from, say, the children or grandchildren of the photographer? How do you go about digging those type of things out? I've always sort of seen it as a my little trade secret, but well, you said it, eBay. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, not just eBay. eBay. There are other places you can get them as well. Sure. We, we we tend not to go to the families. Um, Absolutely not. You know, no. we, mainly because we don't have access, but also because it, you know, there is an ethical question here of the, and a lot of people will sort of kind of have this idea already. Isn't it really bad that these pictures are taken out of context? And the answer is, yeah, yeah, it really is. And it is one of the big shames of um, this hobby. And unfortunately, uh, we're, we're kind of powerless to, to do anything about it, apart from obviously making these pictures available to the public uh, through books such as this. Um, and we are generally, we, we change the context of them in many ways because these pictures were taken by German photographers. You know, this would be like one T34 picture of an album of maybe 300. We've completely removed it from the context. And so... From a, a historical, you know, historian's point of view, actually, is it's, it's very transformative. But you could have a, a very negative view on what we do, and our response to that is, well, you know, at least we treat the subject with quite a lot of reverence, and, and that's one mm-hmm. of the other things we should mention whilst we're talking about German private photographs. Whilst they can't take pictures of German war dead except for graveyards, um, there are an awful lot of pictures of German of, of German pictures that show Soviet war dead. Yes. And a lot of the time, you will see uh, some very grisly photographs. Um, they're usually, they were usually um, those listings are usually removed. But Francis and I both have photographs showing war dead, and which were specifically taken of the war dead as well. Mm-hmm. Not just you know they happen to be there. Um, there's a very gruesome picture from the Spanish Civil War of a I think it's a knocked out BA six or possibly a Chevrolet BC. And you can see an immolated corpse is hanging out of the hatch and there's just Germans next to it posing, you know, like it's a sort of uh, tourist attraction. And mm. so this is very, um, we're on very dubious ethical grounds, you know, with these because um, this is the last picture of a person at the end of the day. This is a person. One of the things we do say in the introduction of our book is, I know uh, model makers like to talk about tanks like they're a sort of classic car. But what you have to bear in mind is that most of the photographs we have will be the graves of some people. And when you can see these war dead, it really brings home the fact that it's not just a sort of sanitized, uh, soulless part of the, the war. You know, tanks are pretty bad. And as we were you know, talking about Cuba earlier, these tanks are also symbols of oppressors, not just symbols of glory. You know, and it's not just a so-called tank that won the Second World War. It's also the tank that was the, you know, the main vehicle of an oppressive force, you know. And so, yeah. like we say with Cuba and T-34, hey, I say that the eight-part composite is cool, but I wouldn't go to certain parts of Miami and go and shout that about. <laughs> you know, that, that's two states I've done now. Right. But, <laughs> but by the same token, and yes, you're, you're divorcing the, the photograph from its context in some extent, but you're also advancing knowledge because 
until you look at these photographs, which unfortunately, because of the fact that there aren't exactly 100% accurate records of every change that was made to a, every T-34 from every factory, you are adding to historical knowledge of the vehicle. And which I think is, now is a great time for Francis to talk about the 21st Tank Brigade's assault on Kalinin, <laughs> which is the second battle in our book, because our photographs, or well, his actually specifically, do a really good job of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I think that I completely agree with what you said as well. I think that um, I think that we handle the subject with a lot of respect in the book, uh, and I think the community as a whole does does a good job at, at respecting what these what these things are. And and yeah, as Will said, um, we've got four battle sections in the book, and the second one is of the twenty first Tank Brigade's assault on Kalinin. It's a reasonably well known battle in the opening days of the Battle for Moscow. And I was very lucky to uh, find some photographs of the tanks uh, post-combat. And um, using the original uh, battle reports from some of the guys that actually fought the Soviet tank crews who, uh, after the battle, wrote down their experiences, uh, I was able to positively identify a few of the tanks with the actual men that crewed them uh, specifically quite famously uh white 20 it was a t-34 with a 57 millimeter gun um and it had a big white 20 painted on the hull it was commanded by a guy called lukin that's reasonably well known however in the book we have photographs of a tank with a number one painted on the side and using the historical documents and a little bit of Google Earth to find the actual location, um, we were able to positively identify that tank as belonging to uh, Captain Mikhail Pavlov Agipov. Um, so we were able to give some context there on you know someone who died in that very tank. And we've got a photograph of it. Nothing in the photograph is particularly gruesome. It's, it's a knocked out tank. But reading the story of how the tank got there, it gives some context to just that one vehicle. And you know, it doesn't take a leap of logic to then put that on all the other vehicles in the book that you see burning or destroyed is hang on. Yeah, it's a cool tank and it, it's got cool features. It's got turrets, blah, 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 blah. But actually, someone died, potentially died in that vehicle. And I think that uh, we do, through the battle segments and, and that sort of thing, we do a reasonably good job of trying to like uh, bring bring home some of the... Uh, realities of war and some of the emotion as well in, in these battles i mean you, you uh, certainly in the last battle section in in korea you know you really get a sense of um because dean's actually quite a lucid storyteller you know he talks about how these north korean t-34 85s are rumbling down a street and he's got really as he says nervous bazooka gunners although actually i think he's probably added uh, nervous in there to disguise the fact that the bazookas are very inaccurate but he talks about you know these bazooka gunners trying to shoot the t-34s and you know they miss and then he whips out his pistol and just starts plinking at the armor of the t-34 in absolute frustration at the fact that he can't do anything about this armor and so real, i think real you know Ryan moment. <laughs> it, it really is and uh, that's the emotion of these vehicles as well you know uh, it's not the intention of the book but i think uh we we as a reader you should certainly be able to capture a little bit of that um but as we say you know the production changes are the main thing so I suppose it would be a good time to talk about what the book 
really is in in detail. So we've already talked about the source set. So uh, what we do is we break down. And this is absolutely unique to our book because um, you know the the T thirty four model nineteen forty T thirty four model nineteen forty one and so on is a dreadfully misleading and inaccurate system, They're absolutely outdated, and it doesn't make any sense. Um, L11 guns, of course, were produced after, you know, the and, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, hexagonal turrets came in in December 1941, so they're not modern 1942, and so on. Uh, so we break down, I think we have about 75 individual and uh, new designations that we've come up with, and we'll, we'll say T34 brackets, and we'll mm. get the factory number or the uh, designation. So STZ obviously didn't have the number. And then we'll say either using technical features or maybe say initial, early, late, or a combination of the two. Mm. And this is, you know, the, the uh, technical features is especially important for the really early stuff from 183. Uh, we break this down and say, okay, look, here's a much better way of looking at T34 because one of the I don't want to badmouth them again, but um, Fleischer's book, I've got my annotated copy here with about a stack of um, at least three dozen sticky notes in here of just um, problems I have with the designation system. And if you don't believe us as people who have a best interest in, you know, promoting our book over others, uh, Dan Egan's uh, a very uh, well-known figure in the C34 interest group, uh, his review of it was... Um, uh, in summary, the book has numerous major errors in poor photographic reproduction. And um, I think the problem with the errors is, uh, above all, is the fact that the designation system of model and year doesn't really t- tell the story. And anyone who wants to know about the T-34, or in his case, talk about the T-34's production, has to break it down into production batches. And that's exactly what we've done. Well, to, to add to that, um, <clears throat> in our methodology at the very beginning of the book, we state very clearly that in official Soviet sources, there are only three names for T-34s. That's T-34. Any T-34 with a 76mm um, gun. Of both kinds, by the way. The yep. L-11 or the F-34. Yep, yep. T-34-85 with a, with a hyphen. Um, again, yep, not a slash. T- yeah. yep, t- all T-34-85s come under that. And the last one, the, the rarest one, is T-34 with 57mm gun. Um, so when we came up with this naming system, uh, we we made it very clear in our methodology that all of these tanks will fall into these categories. Uh, and when we give the name of, of the vehicle, we have T-34 if it's a T-34 or T-34-85 if, if it's that. And then in brackets, the, the sort of name that we had given it. Um, this was done to make it abundantly clear that it's not what the Soviets called them. It's what we're calling them. And in our methodology in the book, it's, it's very clearly stated that the reason we did this is T-34, T-34-85 is far too generic. Um, and T-34, model 1940, 1941, as Will said, just doesn't make the cut. It's, it's a, frankly awful way of categorizing your your tanks um so what we've done i think it's very bold i'm not gonna i'm not gonna sit here and say that everyone's gonna like what we've done but i think it's the first major attempt in a publication to solidly have a go at cracking the nut of how do you name these tanks because it's not easy it's really not easy i think if you're a rivet counter like me these names will make a lot of sense um and I, I hope that when you read the book and you read about these production changes, 
you'll see why we've named these vehicles as they are. Um, and, you know, the emphasis on the names is is the factory, as, as Will said. So, I mean, I've got the book up on my screen as, we, as we're talking. And one of the pictures I'm looking at is um, a T-34 brackets, KHPZ183 redesigned stowage. And, um, you know, it gives far better context to the tank we're looking at than T-34 model 1941, which is what this vehicle might have been called in in a far inferior nomenclature. As I said, I don't think that I think that uh, what we've done is very bold. Um, I think that we'll have a mix of opinions on what we've called things, but honestly, in my humble opinion, it's by far the most useful way of naming T-34s which has been produced to date. That raises a question for me. Is the most important thing to know about a particular T-34, the factory that it was produced at? Yes and no. Um, T-34s from all the different factories were, were different enough that you can just look at one and say it's from this factory. From a modeling perspective, it's really useful if you're looking at a... Let's say you've only got one reference photograph of a tank that you want to build a model of from one very specific angle. Looking at that photograph that you've got of the vehicle you want to build, or even just the model you want to build, but you know that it's wrong, or you know you might need to change something. And then looking at our book and these pictures, you're able to say, ah, the tank I've got a photograph of, or the tank I want to build, is this KHBZ183 redesigned stowage tank. So when I build this model, even though I can't see the rear of the tank, because the photograph I've got is only from the front, I know that I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to change the stowage, blah, 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 blah. You need to have this sort of tow hook. You need to have this sort of engine access hatch. That's gotcha. very useful. Yeah, yeah, I, I can um, see There's that. also another great upshot of having this designation system. And so um, when you think about, you know, there's a, the everyman question is that you see all the time on Facebook is, hey, what's the best tank of the war? Um, now, that's a question that we really hate for various reasons. Um, my um, academia senses are going off the, off the charts for how bad of a question that is. But um, the, the upshot of this is that you could, when you get questions like, oh, you know, how good was the M4 Sherman or how good was the Panzer IV? Someone who actually knows about those vehicles will immediately say, well, hey, which version do you mean? Do you mean the M4A2 Sherman with its diesel engine or do you mean the Panzer IV J, you know, which doesn't have I think it didn't have the electrical drive turret drive. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a Panzer IV expert, but you know what I'm saying. So, you know, the T-34, although it doesn't have as many differences as all the different models of Shermans and Panzer IVs in terms of, you know, because they might have very different engines, although to be fair, the T-34 was a small batch. I think 112 was issued with the M17F aero engine, not the V2, but that's an aside. And STZ, too. Oh, and STZ, yeah. Um, as an aside, um, whilst the T-34, you know, it wouldn't have as many different guns as, you know, the, M- uh, the M4 Sherman and so on and so on, you know, it wouldn't have as many different uh, changes like the Panzer IV. What you will be able to see from this book is that every factory production and batches indeed were very different. And so when you, if you were to compare something like an STZ built in the middle of 1942 and compare it to something like um, a, a 112, say, built in another year, you know, you will get the sense of, well, actually, you know, calling it the T-34 suddenly doesn't really make sense. And so when you look at the Aberdeen report, that famously cited report of the um, T-34 and the KV-1 that were tested at Aberdeen Proving Grounds, 
you know, you should immediately think, well, actually, it doesn't really make, uh, it's not fair to the T34 to use just one model, although it's a bit, you know, in fairness, it was a very, very high finished uh, product and it had a British radio in it, in fact. Um, but that's an aside. Um, it, it becomes really clear that you really shouldn't be talking about the T34 in any way, certainly not the T3476, because, you know, those models were quite heterogeneous as well. And so it, it has this, this designation system can help us with an intervention into the debate of, and there is a legitimate historical debate to be had about the quality of the T34, you know, not least because, of course, Soviet and uh, other countries will uh, say, oh, it's the best tank ever. And then all the countries will say, well, it's the worst tank ever. Interestingly, the Aberdeen report had a very, uh, had some very interesting assessments of it, some very positive, some very negative. And so it does help us with that uh, debate if you, you know, into that sort of thing, because you'll be able to say, well, actually, we need to take more of a um, nuanced approach. Like you said, it it gives so much context to something like the Aberdeen report, because um, Aberdeen received a um, UTZ-183 made T-34, which was issued with a cast heavyweight early turret. And I think the report would have said different things if they'd been sent well, the tank from the same factory, but given a hexagonal composite type turret, um, just just the increasing volume inside that turret probably would have given it a better a better um, write up. And that's two tanks at the exact same factory, where on a production line, instead of getting given one turret, it's been given the other turret. Um, and yeah, I think I think that it's just so useful for that sort of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what drawings we might expect in this book and the, and the source of those? Sure. So the technical drawings were drawn by uh, a Yank, one of you guys, uh, a guy called uh, Mark Retheret. He's from Arizona. Really, really good guy. He's been he's been on T thirty four forums and interest groups and pages since the internet began. He, he's been he's been talking about the T thirty four longer than I've been alive. And so he's um, the best guy to get technical drawings done. He's a very talented artist, and so really the guy you want. Um, I found him through the T-34 interest group. I said, you know, I'm writing a book on T-34s. Would you be interested? And he ummed and ahed originally because he said, I've been asked to write, do technical drawings for other books. But once we described to him what we're doing, he immediately jumps on board because... Maybe we should describe what they are. So... It's a good job I'm here, Frankie. I'm not going to lie. Mate, mate. <laughs> it's been a long week. We complement each other really well. So the technical drawings... We've we've got just over thirty five of them, and uh, we we picked out key vehicles that um, he should do side profiles, front and front views of. A few of the vehicles have got full wraparounds, um, but they they do focus heavily on the technical details that we talk about. Um, it's something that other books you know can touch on, but um, I, I in my opinion don't quite get right. Um, so once you read the book in context, like um, all the different production changes, what to expect from each tank, which I think most of the pictures do a very good job of showing you. But if you don't quite understand what I'm talking about in the pictures, you can then reference back to these technical drawings, which are, are superb, really highly accurate. And you can say, oh, well, what does he mean that STZ manufactured a unique drive wheel? I can't see it in the pictures. And then you go to the technical drawing and it's it's sitting there and like, wow, look at that. I can clearly see what what he's talking about. And the technical drawings range from the um, first 10 tanks 
the vehicles which were manufactured from A34 parts all the way down to we've got a technical drawing of a Czechoslovakian manufactured T3485 and a um, Chinese, Chinese Type, type 58. Yes, the Chinese uh, upgrade to T3485. <laughs> it's not a segue into Chinese tank. It's not a segue into Chinese. I was, what I was going to say is uh, our technical drawings focus exclusively on the exterior of T34. So we'll have certain ones of just the turrets, but most of it is just T34 models, OT34s, T3485s, that sort of thing. Aside from occasionally we'll have use of up armor plating, which we have quite a few great sections of with great pictures in. So if you're interested in things like ammo, internals, gun cutaway, technical diagrams, this is not the book for you. And uh, one reprieving thing of uh, Fleischer's T34 book is that it does have these, although they are taken mostly from the uh, original sort of uh, prototype diagrams and so on. If if you're interested in like track types in particular we've got a really good set a really good pair of technical drawings of i think nearly every single type of track for the t34 used because most people look at t34 tracking can point at i think three different types and go oh well there, there's an early type and, and there's that weird one with a v on it and there's the waffle type but actually there's about 21 22 different types of t34 track that were issued during the war and you know we've got some really nice technical drawings of those. So if you want cutaway photos, you know, you should look at the Zaloga books. Uh, we do talk about the internals of, uh, yeah, I think, absolutely. several different T-34s. You know, we, we have a three sections where we talk about what's the inside the T-34, because, of course, we've crewed T-34-85s. But, if, you know, it is mainly the exteriors that we're looking at for this. Um, the in- internals would be a whole other subject. Absolutely, when it's relevant to uh, the vehicles. But... Um... Yeah, the majority of the majority of the technical drawings and by extension majority of the book is is the exterior what it looked like. All right. Well, we're we're getting a little long here and I want to talk about the the crewing of the T34, but uh, on the topic of the book in closing, I'm going to rephrase what I had on the outline. Um do you guys feel that your personal goals for this book have been met? Smashed. Absolutely, absolutely exceeded. You know, we had we had no idea that we were going to write 560 uh, pages in the outset. We had no idea that we were going to cover every single linear variant and post-war, you know, Czechoslovak, Polish, and Chinese stuff. And uh, so, it's just, you know, we 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 just wrote and wrote and wrote, and it grew and it grew, and we realised actually we've got them. You know, if we do say so, and yeah, we do say so. The most comprehensive T34 production book ever, the most accurate one ever. And I think if there's seven things that really go for it, it's the longest book. It's longer than Mythical Weapon. It's got the most photographs of pretty much any T34 book. And these photographs are, are unique. It's the most detailed and wide-ranging one, which even goes into post-war production modification. So the Chinese stuff is, you can, you'll only find that on my Tag Encyclopedia article. That is groundbreaking stuff. We have our own designation system that moves beyond the inaccurate model year stuff, which I think is going to be really helpful oh you know it's not going to be something that won't change you you know there will be changes as more information comes to light uh, we've got four battles recounted so if you're interested in battles you know you're going to have that base covered uh, the first one is the t26 assault at sasania in the start of the spanish civil war the first battle that the t26s are involved in uh, the third one is t34 85s uh, at Oklodau fighting tiger 2 king diggers um and you know we've we've the sixth point that I want to bring up is we've, with these photographs, we haven't just said, oh, here are the technical features, you know. A lot of them, we've researched the locations, we've researched the divisions, we've said, oh, well, we know this Moscow Collective Farm must have belonged to these uh, units and so on. 
And so whereas in other books, you'll just go, oh, look, it's a T-34 model 1940 somewhere in Ukraine. You know, sometimes we can find the specific village. And uh, the seventh point is that we've crewed T-3485. And so we have firsthand experience with this vehicle. And so when you read the T-3485 section in particular, you know, our own knowledge really starts to come in here. And so there's a nice detail with one of the post-war updates where we say, oh, and by the way, when the turret's rotating, you know, make sure you move your leg because you could trap your leg with the heat. I think it's the heater box. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the heater box. Okay. Yeah. So I have to ask, if you crewed a T-3485, is a sledgehammer an essential piece of equipment? Okay, uh, so here's here's a little anecdotal story from the very first time I was in a T thirty four crewing it for a show. So um, it's the wonderful Capel Tank Show in Surrey, England. If if any of you guys ever get to England, make sure you get to this tank show. It's wonderful. And if you've got any UK listeners, make sure you go to Capel. Um, it's one of the best tank shows in the UK. The, the the guy who the drive the 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 driver um good friend of mine alex hall he says you know get in the gunner seat you'll have a real good time up there so i'm sitting in the gunner seat um alex hall the driver is is sort of between the legs in front of me and um we start moving and oh the, the noise the smell it's so hard to describe it's it's insanely claustrophobic and you immediately lose any sense of direction the moment the vehicle starts moving and this is just um, in a t3485 which is one of the biggest yeah. turrets ever god thinks uh, imagine thinking about the yeah. earlier turrets but anyway you know i've only got the gun sight to look through i've got some vision i've got a um mk4 periscope uh in front of me and that is it that's all i can do to look around um, we get we get onto the arena floor. We've only been in first gear up until this point, and it's time to move into second gear so we can give a little bit more welly. And I, I watched this unfold before my eyes. So Alex is 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 uh, driving away. Uh, there's no one sitting in the engineer's seat, which is to the right of the um, of of the driver. And what is sitting in this seat? A great big hammer. <laughs> and he wants to change gear. So what does he do? He picks up this hammer and he gives it a bloody good whack. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, hmm, maybe maybe not everything you read online is 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 made up about the T thirty four. I mean, absolutely. I wouldn't be strong enough to drive it. Yeah, that is the apocryphal story about the T thirty four. Is to to change gears, you needed a small ham a sledgehammer in order to actually change the gear. Yeah, for, for context on why that's the case. So. Um, the gearbox of the T-34 is at the rear of the tank. And obviously the driver is at the front of the tank. And he has two lateral clutches that he uses to make the tank go forward, make the tank go backward, make the tank stop. Um, and that also goes for, he's got a gear stick to his right, and it's actually just behind him. So you have to sort of reach behind you to change gears. All of the controls for driving the tank then have to go underneath the fighting compartment and engine compartment floor on large control rods that then reach the gearbox so that the vehicle can change gears. And uh, this actually happened on the second T-34 at the farm that uh, we I've crewed, which is a Czechoslovakian-made tank. Uh, that one was a little bit more beat up than the Soviet one I've crewed. And unfortunately, uh, because of the length of those um, control rods from driver to engine compartment, they just get sticky, and they just stick on everything. And... Um, on the Czechoslovakian T-34 in particular, we had to open the um, transmission hatch. <laughs> I had to stand behind this T-34 
uh, with Alex saying, right, if it doesn't change gear, you need to whack this control rod in this direction so we can go into <laughs> reverse because we needed to reverse the tank out. And luckily, I didn't have to. Luckily, it moved. But I was absolutely terrified standing behind this T-34 waiting for the key to smack the transmission to get it to go into reverse and then hopefully not having to jump out the way for my life. But, um, yeah, that that will be why the, the T-34 and KV-1 sometimes needs a little bit of um, help changing gear. Now, I don't know either of you by sight. How tall are you? And in crewing a T-34-85, you, you hear stories about how cramped the conditions are what was your experience well i'm 58 about 5859 so i'm a great height for the t3485 uh, it's 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 really not too bad you know um although lowering myself in through the commander's hatch onto the fold out seat you sort of have to push it down with your foot and uh, we do this in uniform as well so it's really not the most ergonomic uniform um it, it's okay um scrambling out's not too bad either but I think Frankie, who's a lot taller, will have a different story. Yeah, I'm I'm six foot three. Um, I'm not exactly the smallest person either. I'm not not huge, but you know, I've got a bit of a belly on me. Um, and um, sitting sitting in one of those tanks with three other people just in the turret is incredibly claustrophobic. Um, the last time I crewed a T thirty four, which was just just over the summer, uh, we did a training day with our reenactment group. And um, I sat in the gunner seat and I had uh, a guy standing where the loader would stand and another guy in the command cupola uh, sitting inside with the hatch closed as if we were in battle, just just to give the guys that we were training with a sense of what it would be like to be in a loud, hot metal box. Uh, we weren't even moving. We were stationary at this point with, with just the air extractor fans going off behind us. And the commander's legs, could, could he couldn't sit facing forward, which is how you're meant to sit. He had to sit sideways with his legs pinned between the, um, the, the shell cradle for the gun and, and me. Um, and it, I just couldn't believe. It, you just can't get your head around that a crew of five is meant to fight in this tank. Um, and it was even worse when we got my brother in, because my brother's six foot seven. Um, and that's a whole that's a whole other can of worms that, that were opened when we got him in the T thirty four. Yeah, the the ergonomics um, you really don't understand how bad they are. And this is a, a post war, or at least uh, one of them's early post war, perhaps a production model, which is supposed to be quite ergonomic. And so when you'll read you'll read in the book about the so called April report, with uh, it's meant to be the changes to some of the early T thirty four production, you'll read about things such as wooden seats for the drivers, which is inconceivably uncomfortable to think about i mean even with this tank i want to take out dental insurance every time the tank moves because if i'm sat in the hatch i'm so scared that it'll it'll fall and these um the the single piece hatch for the t3485 command cupola as opposed to the two piece and uh, the earlier type well it's really heavy and so when you read about the big single piece hatch on the earliest uh, t34 turrets it must have been absurdly heavy and I'm not the strongest guy. I mean, Frankie's a lot, lot stronger than I am. But we even have trouble with these single-piece hatches on the T-3485. And so what you'll get the sense of is this tank is not ergonomic. I mean, I've ripped bits of my uniform just jumping down into the turret because, you know, I've caught the back of my gymnosturka on a, a locking pin or something like that. It's 
it's not an ergonomic vehicle and uh, the handrails are absolutely vital for getting on the tank because you put your you put your you put your firm foot onto the track and then you jump up onto the um side uh, the sort of onto the side of the tank and then you can use the handles to get towards the turret tanks that weren't issued with handles must have been awful getting in and out of especially if it was wet impossible i'd say <laughs> yeah you'd think so and so handrails are, you know you, you might not really appreciate handrails on the tanks until you try and get in one mm. my experience at the t3485 is the the one that used to be at the Patton museum out at fort knox uh, which apparently oh, yeah. Yeah. came from the korean war and it was a oh. cast it was a cast turret and it had voids in the turret that you could stick your fist in we had the exact same experience with an almost identical T-34 that belongs belongs to Tim Isaac, which is currently at the uh, Cobit and Combat Collection. It, it's almost the exact same vehicle. It's a um, Krasnaisamovo 112 manufactured T-34 with car, uh, cast turret and what we've coined the uh, T-3485 hard edge because the, the plate at the rear of the turret, um, the seam is hidden underneath the, the bustle rather than being on the side like other factories. And, um, yeah, i I never forget. We we turned up to – it was like a reenactment show, a vintage railway, and we turned up, and there's this T-34 recruiting. And it was, it's a gorgeous tank. It's probably the nicest tank I've ever crewed, like beautiful inside. And the most complete as well. Yeah. We, we go up to the turret, and Will, Will just looks at the, this casting on the, on the front of the turret, and he goes – you what? It's full of holes. It's really bad, and um, you know you won't necessarily appreciate this from some of the ten- uh, from some of the uh, technical drawings alone. And um, it's only when you look at them in person, really. No book can ever show you how bad the casting is. It's genuinely something else. And so, when we were speaking to like other vehicle owners, people who own um, chieftains or um, Shermans. They just look at it and they're like, what is this? It's awful. Uh, and comparatively, yeah, fair point. And we love the T-34 and it's a fair point. <laughs> well, the, the other apocryphal story out at Fort Knox was that when they brought the, the T-3485 and drove it into the museum to its parking place is they had to spread plastic tarps everywhere because it sprayed oil everywhere when that, that it was being driven. Me. That I can me. believe that, yeah. Uh, another anecdotal story for myself was moving the uh, Czechoslovakian T-34, uh, T-3485, across the farm one day, and um, for whatever reason, there was no pressure in the fuel lines, so I had to sit there on the back of the tank with a hand pump, um, essentially pump uh, to start the engine just to get the, the fuel into the system uh before the, I, I don't I, if i remember rightly the pressure never actually got up and i had to sit there it wasn't a very long journey and yeah the tank wasn't in great condition but i had to sit there and essentially manually pump this this crap into the engine and it was insane they are they are dirty machines like mm. the, the, i'd like to tell one quick chinese t34 story because we haven't really talked about the chinese t34s and that's a damn shame um okay. but um yeah no please let me um <laughs> i know we'll be quick because we're, we're going over so um yes chinese t34s if you look very carefully at some of the ones that are in the i believe now closed beijing tank museum there's an su 100 and i believe in t3485 if i remember rightly i have to double check that it's in the book um 
it looks like there's a completely new exhaust system that's been set up for these tanks. So the original ones, the exhaust shrouds, have been taken off. The holes have been welded over with a plate. And just be- just above the engine access hatch, there are two new exhausts that sort of are flush with the uh, roof of the engine arm section. And the- according to a story, and we're very clear about source problems with Chinese T-34s in the book, but according to one story, and this is because... At the height of the Sino-Soviet split in 1969, they sort of ran out of or just didn't have replacement parts. And so crews, Chinese crews were reporting carbon monoxide poisoning because exhausts were failing. And it was filling the fighting compartment with carbon monoxide and various other gases. And so what they did is they completely changed the exhaust system in this way uh, to essentially avoid having to use replacement parts, which they didn't have because they either didn't produce them or the Soviet Union, of course, wouldn't sell them them. And so, you know, if you, anyone who owns a T-34 or has worked with a T-34, they'll know all these little kind of things that you have to do because if you don't have access to factories um, and, you know, for repairs uh, and capital repairs, you'll have to do all these kinds of things. And I think one thing that would be make for another great T-34 book in the future would be looking at what crews did, if we can interview veterans, and what kind of little little weird things they did to keep these tanks running because there'll be all kinds of stories like this. Well, I, I wish you guys ultimate success with this book. Like I said, I'm looking forward to my copy. How about we tell our listeners uh, the best place to find this book and when we might expect it? Sure. Um, so as of recording, um, the book has been delayed by three weeks. It was originally meant to come out on May 20th. Uh, it's now looking like it's going to come out sometime around June 15th to 20th. The print run has uh, increased because pre-sales were very high, and it's a very, as we say, 560-page, one-and-a-half-kilo book. It's a big boy. However, you should be able to get it from Amazon. Uh, it's currently uh, available on the UK version of Amazon, the European version of Amazon. Uh, it's not currently on the US one, but as far as I'm aware, it should eventually go on uh, the American version. Probably after um, it's released. Yeah. Yep, it's available from all good bookstores uh, in the uk it's available from waterstones um it's available any uh, most military bookstores i've seen adverts now posting that they're going to be selling it so it shouldn't be a hard book to find but if, if you're an american uh, you know based person you don't want to buy it off amazon you can get it from font hill media our publisher it's currently 40 pounds which is about 56 american dollars uh, that might change with the exchange rate and so on uh, it's a very reasonable shipping cost from Font Hill Media, if I do say so. I think it's something like twelve or fifteen dollars. Um, I couldn't possibly comment on import taxes um, or USPS delivering them on time, because uh, uh, hey, USPS, hey. Um, but um, so yes, Font Hill Media. If you're an American uh, reader and you don't want to buy off Amazon, that's uh, T34 Shock, the Soviet legend in pictures, gentlemen. Thank you for taking time to speak with us today. It's It's been a blast, and I'm really looking forward to your book. It's a favorite subject of mine, and uh, hopefully I'll get my copy soon. Well, thanks for having us. It's been great. Absolutely. It's great to talk to you guys. We'd love to you know, be on again sometime. Well, maybe we could we could do that and, uh, and explore some of these uh, Chinese T-34s a bit more. And, and, uh, <laughs> They're worth exploring. Wow, Dave, I can't wait for my pre-order to get here, man. I'm uh, really looking forward to this one. I wish them all the success with this book because I think it's uh, going to be a great one. 
Well, you know what 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 I absolutely hate about this is the fact that these guys are two pretty young guys. Oh, no kidding. In their mid-20s, and they have managed to, through this book, contribute to the fountain of knowledge that is the knowledge surrounding the T-34. They've, uh, you know, they're breaking new ground. They're, they're uh, trying to organize it in new ways. And I'm just, I mean, you know, it's one of those things like where, where, where you look at Mozart and Ben Franklin and feel, or, and feel a, a little bit inadequate about what you've accomplished in life. <laughs> so I'm super jealous. Well, that goes back to the uh, Lego Biker YouTube channel, too. I mean, exactly. Kid younger than my kids pumping out YouTube videos on modeling. I'm sitting here trying to figure out how we're going to get Facebook Live going. (laughs) (laughs) See, you need to bring on a young tech. You need to get one of those unpaid interns who's young and hungry. There you go. That's a good idea. So, uh, Mike, do you have any shout outs for the month? Uh, I've got two. We can alternate. I'll okay, start. Well, I've got one. So okay. Uh, first shout out is to Alex, Tim, and Chris. You know who you are. Uh, regular contributors to Plastic Model Mojo in the financial sense. Uh, thank you guys for your regular contributions. Uh, it's going a long way to help us along. If there's anyone else out there who would like to join the ranks of Mojovia, you can do so by using the heart icon in the upper right hand corner of our website www.plasticmodelmojo.com. The link can also be found at the beginning and end of any show notes of any episode, but uh, it's most readily available on the on the homepage to the to our website. Uh, click that link, and it'll take you to a uh, a PayPal option to uh, contribute to our show. We really appreciate it. So thanks a lot, guys. Yes, thank you very much. And if there are any of you contributors, past or present, who haven't emailed me at the email address lolaw at aol.com, please email me your name and mailing address. I've got something to send you. Uh, we Just a little token of our thanks for your support for the, the podcast. So if you if you haven't done that, please please go ahead and do it. We want to get that stuff to you. Well, Mike, my shout out is to a guy who I'm not even sure is listening to this podcast, but hopefully others like him as well. Um, There's a modeler in our Mosquito group build, uh, Rick Green, who also happens to be an attorney, lives up in, in Columbus, Ohio. And Rick has kind of been struggling lately with building, with, uh, you know, finding the time, the mojo, the motivation to get to the bench and to build. And, you know, I know we all go through that. And hopefully things like listening to this podcast motivate you to get back to the bench. The first step to getting back to the bench is getting back to the bench. Sit down, start sticking parts together. You will remember why you enjoy this hobby. So my thoughts are going out to my thoughts are going out to Rick and any other modelers who are experiencing that particular issue right now, hopefully you'll get back to the bench and hopefully you'll find uh, Mike and I there with you modeling along. My other sh- shout out comes to us from uh, Ethan Eidmill, who's the webmaster for IPMS San Diego. They've got a show coming up 
Uh, June 5th, IPMS San Diego Model Expo. It's going to be held at Gillespie Field Annex of the uh, San Diego Air and Space Museum. And I told them I would get that into the episode to make sure uh, they get the highest attendance they can get. So, Ethan, good luck with your show. It's a little far for us to to make that one, but uh, we're with you in spirit, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, any of you who are out there, out there listening to, to us, you heard how much we enjoyed the Roscoe Turner show. The shows are coming back alive now. In fact, I was talking to Dr. Terry Hill, who's our show chairman here in Louisville. And we moved to a new larger venue because of the anticipated flood of, of modelers and kits coming into the show. So please, if there's a show near you, make the time, go attend. You'll love it. Uh, I guarantee you. All right, Dave, we probably ought to wrap this one up. It's getting a little long. I know, man. I know you don't want to, we don't want to get a reputation for two hour episodes all the time. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can cut this one down. Hopefully you can get it edited without it taking over your life. As they say, Dave, so many kits. So little time, Mike. See you soon. All right, man. Take it easy. I'll see you soon.